This morning, if you've got your Bibles, then please turn to Romans chapter 8. We're going to get there in just a second. Romans chapter 8, just a phenomenal chapter described as the greatest chapter in the Bible. And so doing justice to that has left me a little weak need, but uh, it's been great to study and, uh, and work through it and enjoy what God has to say to us. Before we get there, I meant to mention Boyd. Is Boyd in the room? Oh, and you woke up. Oh, yes. Half marathon, was it, you did? Was it yesterday? Full marathon. Boyd, if you can, can you stand up? Okay, let's give Boyd a round of applause. And the reason is, is he was raising money for Child of Mine. So if you want to give to Boyd, he would be more than happy to take that from you. And Brad, who was right in front of Boyd, would also be equally as happy for the soldiers. That a great a team went down and, uh, and led, uh, led a marathon. You can take your seat now if you can. Do you need help? You're good. Um, led a marathon. That's not quite the right word. Well, I'm assuming. Boyd, did you lead it? No, okay. Next year. Oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah. And then he woke up. Um, well, that's good. Thank you, Boyd, for doing that. And so uh, we'd love to support our missions. It's wonderful. Romans chapter 8 and verse 14. That's where we're going to start. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We're going to jump into these three verses, 14, 15, and 16. Before we get there, let me just frame this a little bit as to, and I've said this to you many times, I read through and study the Word of God, and I get points, and then all the way through I'm thinking, okay, so what? Great, but so what? This is wonderful, Lord, but so what? What does this have to actually do with me as a person, first and foremost, and then also as I'm seeking to pastor the church and the community and the group that God has given us to serve, what does it mean to them? So I was thinking about this. You'll see in Romans 8, it's been described as a chapter of assurance. It starts with no condemnation. In the middle, it says you are children. It finishes with you're more than conquerors. There's this constant resonating reminder through the whole chapter that you are a child of God and be assured, be encouraged, be emboldened. And so the question, we're really going to dig into that today, but the question I had was, so what? What does this assurance result in for me in my life? If I'm, if I'm really aware of what it is that God has called me to do and who I am, and so what? What does this mean for my neighbor? What does this mean for my city? What does this mean for my young adult child? What does this mean to my little one? So what? One of my fears um, as a pastor and, and as a church leader, and I've been in some sort of uh, pastoral ministry now for 26 years, um, my fear is, is that as we get older, as I get older, and as church develops, that we present the wrong image of church to our young people coming up. There's, it's well known that there's a big drop-off when it comes to at the end of high school, then they, they stop coming to church. Why is that? Why is it that young adults especially don't want to go to church anymore? It's very quick and easy, and, and I, this hasn't been as a result of anything that I've received this week. This is just reflecting on Christendom, not your email or our conversation, okay? I think about this because I have young adults. I have young adult children. Um, it'd be easy to say, well, the church needs to do a better job. And to a certain extent, I would agree on a certain area, which I'm going to talk about in a second. What the church doesn't need to do is cater for them more. 
you know, uh, well, we need to do this young adult service, or we need to do this particular service for children. We're, Sarah and I are praying about whether we should do a, a regular family service for children, like every six weeks, do a family-specific service. Here's the problem with that. As soon as you do a family service, anybody who doesn't have families, guess what? They don't come. Um, some people... Uh, I'm not criticizing, this is just reality. When we were doing barbecues, some people don't want to come to the barbecues. And 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 to a certain extent, I agree with that. But we can't keep on, I I understand, I don't agree with it. I understand, well, we're not doing a proper service, I'll go home. But it's more, church is more than just services and and we've got to be careful that we don't just continually cater to the, uh, the, okay, what are the preferences? What I do think the church has done a poor job at, though, is presenting the wrong mission. I think we've made church something that is something to do, and, and a bunch of rules and, and, and don'ts, and, and it just leaves the young people dry. It might leave you dry. Whereas the reality is, young adults, youth, people in general, love to give their lives to something. They love to give their lives to something that is risky, is passionate. They want to change the world. They want to be in part of a battle. They want to be part of something that's worthwhile, that's going to bring transformation. And that is exactly God's plan for this church. This church is not about catering and and just adding Christianity onto what is already a comfortable life. The church... It's about transformation. It's about life change. It's about being radical. It's about being different. All these things are what young people look for. All these things, something to die for. When was it that we got to the frame of mind that when we get forgiven, it's almost like we've got the ultimate life insurance so we can just relax and get comfortable? Whereas when you come to Jesus, he said all these things, John said, all these things have been written that you might believe Absolutely. And then have life in his name to actually go out and make disciples and pray for people and be changed and see transformation. That you will run into church on a Sunday in community group because you're so desperate to tell people about the crazy things that happened that week because we're living out a life of transformation. That is the mission we've been called to. And as parents and as grandparents, if we presented that to our youth and our young adults, not just this is what our church is about, but this is what my life is about, kids. This is the only hope that this city has got. This is the only way that we're going to see change. And they'll start observing it and seeing it and believing in it. So it's easy to say this, though. It's easy to say, okay, let's go and live lives of transformation. Because if we do that, it actually results in a pretty scary life. Remember when Peter gets out of the boat and he walks on the water and he starts to sink. And Jesus reaches out to him and says what? Do not fear. Easy to say, Jesus. You're already walking on the water. Why did he say do not fear? Was it because he's saying, listen, Peter, you should be walking on the water. What are you afraid of? No, what he was actually saying is, Peter, you might die. Don't fear. Don't be afraid, Peter, that the waves are crashing over you. This is your life now. This is what life is like. Life will crash into you. Waves of sorrow will come upon you. Waves of chaos. Waves of difficulty. Waves of challenge. And if we are just protecting our children in such ways, that nasty life shouldn't be doing this to you. 
then we're actually telling them a lie because life at times sucks. It's hard. It's challenging. The waves will come. And what is Jesus' encouragement in the middle of the waves? It's not get back in the boat, Peter. It's not even start walking, Peter, on the water. It's don't be afraid because even in drowning, Peter, you'll be with me. What did Paul say? He said, if you let me live, it's, it's Jesus. If you let me die, I'm going to gain because <laughs> it's Jesus. So we need to be teaching our children, teaching ourselves, communicating this idea of Christianity that is far more than comfort. It's actually being bold enough to live out that calling that Jesus has said to us with the umbrella echo shout, don't be afraid. What were the new Christians at the beginning of Acts constantly praying. You look at it at the beginning of Acts. They don't pray for more life or more more, um, uh, sustenance or please protect us from the bad, nasty people that want to kill us. They prayed for this. God, give me boldness. If we became a bold church, then we would see life transformation. And our kids would see it in our lives and go, I want to be part of that tribe. But if the tribe of church that you have presented is this... Do not blame the church because they will see in you what you prioritize and put as ultimate. And this is a constant conviction for Sarah and I when we bring up our kids. This isn't a, we've got this sorted. It's a conviction. What is it that we're constantly communicating about Christianity? Is it a, you should give your life to this and hey, you know what? Missionaries will die. Your life might not last long. But while it does give everything you can to Jesus, are we actually living that out as a church? Or have we fallen into this idea that Christianity is comfort? Is it radical? Is it relentless? Are we pioneering? And it only takes a small group. I'm fascinated by certain minorities in our culture now that have a tremendously loud voice. Tiny tiny minorities and minorities that have stood up, whether it be the gender issue or whether it be the homosexuality issue, and and I'm not jumping into that and saying that's bad, we need to love, we need to care, we need to come alongside. But what fascinates me is this tiny minority has this ability to turn a whole country's policy. Just imagine if we actually started living out and believing that which we've been told in in the scriptures us as a minority could turn and change policy. Yeah, but I don't think we're able to do that. They think they can do it, and they are not backed up by anything supernatural, unless you want to argue a different kind of supernatural. They're not backed up by God Almighty. We are. We are. So we can do this. So I could go, amen. By the way, we started our sermon late so uh, you're going to have to give me some grace, and, and um, it was for the mums. So if you want to blame anybody, blame the mums. Um, but not today. Do that tomorrow, because it's Mother's Day today. How do you fuel this? It's easy for me to say, okay, guys, let's be bold. Amen. Grab a coffee. Let's go. How do you do that? Be bold. Do you remember the song? Be bold. Be strong. Oh, that's just me. Okay. Thank you. You do remember it. That's nice. Do you do I just like be be bold people, let's go. And you kind of go, yes. And then you get to work, it's like mm, 
How do you, where does this come from? You know what? Boldness, like most of the things that God has given us to enjoy, emerge from something else. Boldness comes, emerges through believing that we're loved, that we're backed up, that we're empowered, that we're cared for, that we're called, that we love. So that brings me all the way around to assurance. If we, church, if we could grasp and be assured of our faith and of who it is that we serve and what he has done and who we are filled by, then boldness will emerge and our children will see it and our community will feel it and our prayers will be empowered in such a way because now you have a group of people that aren't timid, but they're assured that even if you take my life away, it's all good because I know that God When I get there and I kind of come before him, he's going to go, well done, good and faithful servant. You filled that TFSA so fat, but did nothing in my kingdom. I don't want that. I want to fall into heaven exhausted, not rusty. You know, where does that emerge from? It emerges from assurance. Something really interesting happened about 500 years ago, and, and not specifically to the date, okay? I'm not a historian, I'm just a good reader. About 500 years ago, up to about 500 years ago, generally, people had some sort of sense of the supernatural. Everybody really had some kind of religion. So if something happened, something bad happened, then the immediate response would be, well, there's a higher order, and so I come under that higher order... Um, and they're in charge. And so if something challenging happens, well, this is the way that God wills. And then about 500 years ago, and then moving it through to the Enlightenment period, something started to shift. Science started to come in, and what was happening was that mankind, uh, humankind, uh, to be politically correct, um, which I don't like, uh, mankind started to uh, get some answers. In fact, what we're seeing is it was catching up with the Bible, ironically. It's a whole other conversation. But they started getting answers, and so what started happening, instead of looking to a supernatural, they started looking at themselves, their own understanding, that, they, 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 that God slowly started to get sidelined. So now it is that God doesn't get pulled into any of the conversation. It's, who am I? What can I do? I'm in control. My understanding, my logic, my abilities, and this is what we fuel our kids. Look, you can do it. You do anything you set your mind on, just work hard and, and, and just keep going. You can do this. It's all about you. And then we have magazines called own, right? It's about me. It's all about me. So we've shifted from being led by the Spirit of God to being led by ourselves. And then something really fascinating has happened as a result. This is my own reflection. I wonder, think about it, see whether you agree with me, I wonder as a result that the pioneering, risk-taking, guts Let's do this. Courage is diminished the more that we focus on ourselves. Because we don't want to take risks. We don't want to step out of our comfort. Because we like comfort. We want our children to be safe. So we don't take risks because we think somehow the center of the universe is in the beginning God is changed to in the beginning Glenn. And I struggle with this. Because I'm somebody who naturally wants to be in control. And don't judge me, I'm sure some of you are the same. 
But our focus has shifted as a society on empowerment, on what you can do. And as a result, I believe in the church that the risk and pioneering courage, let's do this transformation belief is also reduced because we've lost sight that we're backed up by a supernatural, powerful God. So we're led less by the Spirit of God and we're led more by our own confidence in flesh. And I don't want to take that risk because I don't know what it might mean for me and my family. So I'm going to hold back. I'm just going to hold back. And or we, we Christianize it and go, I just don't believe that the Lord is in this right now. Or I'm praying about it. Classic no in church. Let me think and pray about that. Yeah, all right. You, you do that. You know, the fact that it actually says it in the Bible already that we should go and make disciples. But yeah, you, 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 you pray about whether or not you should talk to that person about Jesus. That, that, that's awesome. Tell me how that works out. One of my favorite stories, if not the favorite story I have in the Bible, is in 1 Samuel, and it's centered on Jonathan and his armor bearer. You know that story? 1 Samuel 14. But basically, this is how it goes. And read it later. It's just fun to read. They're just kind of kicking around one day, and Jonathan says, hey... Let's go find us some Philistines. So the armor bearer is like, good plan. Let's go. So they find themselves some Philistines on the, side of a, on the side of a hill. And it sounds like it's a gorge. And they're at the bottom of the gorge. Philistines are at the top. And Jonathan says this. You can read it. It's, it sounds crazy, but this is Jonathan's strategic three-year plan. Are you ready? Why don't we go up that hill and see whether a god backs us up? Let's go kill some Philistines. And it actually says this. And maybe... God will be with us. Not for sure, maybe. Armor bearer, equally as mental as Jonathan, says, I'm liking this plan. This is great. So Jonathan says, you know what, let's just break this plan down a little bit. We'll, we'll, we'll do this. If we yell up, so plan one, A, shout, wait, to the top of the cliff. Philistines look over the cliff. It's literally what it does. They look over and see Jonathan and his armor bearer. Jonathan says, we'll do that. And if they say, uh, if they give indication that they don't want us to come up, then we won't do it. But if the Philistines say, come on up, then that's what we'll do. You know, there's a whole army of Philistines. Why wouldn't they say, yeah, come on up? And this is what they do. And I love this. This just made me laugh again this morning. The Philistines bend over and they go, yeah, come on up because we want to show you a, a thing. It literally says that. We want to show you a, a thing. So they go up, they climb up, and then this fascinating thing happens. Listen to this. This is brilliant. It actually says that Jonathan and his armor bearer started to kill the Philistines. Then an earthquake comes. God joins in after Jonathan and his armor bearer start killing the Philistines. Not before. We're like, okay, we need a plan, Pastor Glenn. We, we need a plan as to how this is going to work in our community. Let's structure this thing out. Whereas Jonathan goes, let's just go get this done. God may be in it. He may be in it. And I wonder whether the earthquake will come when his people step out and start slaying the Philistines. So where does this boldness come from? Where does this boldness to walk on water, to climb the mountain, where does it come from? 
How do I, as a pastor, and my job description is simple, to equip the saints for ministry. So how do I best equip you? By doing Wednesday night Bible studies and everything else, that's all good, that's wonderful. But how do you get that? Come on, we can do this. Let's go kill ourselves some Philistines. How do you do that? Verse 14, for all who are led... Four, referring back to the previous section where it says this, there's mortification and there's aspiration. You've got to put to death the sin in your body and you've also got to fix your eyes on Jesus. We talked about this last week. But here's what's wonderful. Here's an assurance that you are led by a mighty God. Here's an assurance you are led and filled by the God of the earthquake. Here's the assurance that you are led by the God of the reach into the dark waters and the waves. Here's the assurance. He speaks to you. Number one, God is constantly leading. Constantly leading. So you, I hope, prayed last week, Father, show me what it is that you want me to put to death in my body. What are those sins that are constantly holding me back? An assurance that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the God of the earthquake and the mountain moving and water flattening and powerful and incredible God, the evidence that he lives in you is that we're constantly being led into the light and away from the dark. Today, I hope maybe there'll be something that's happened in you or it will happen in you where you are prompted and reminded, hey, that doesn't belong in your life. Where do you think that voice comes from? It comes from God, the same God that was with Jonathan and with Peter. The same God lives in you. I could argue biblically that he is more powerful now because we have the Holy Spirit in us than he was then. That same God lives in you and he's talking and leading you all the time, pointing out our blind spots. Now you can ignore it. And the Bible says that you can quench and subdue and eventually he will withdraw his spirit. Or you can lean in and go, I'm listening, God. Show me so that I can confess confess it. Give me that conviction so that I can confess it. See, that's assurance, that voice, that leading. A few years ago, my mom and dad asked me to go around to the house. I have told this story before, but it's a good one. Um, To help them in their yard. And I remember it was a very hot day. And so I went out the front of the house. It was up in Cantina Court at the time. And they had this big bush in the front of the yard. And it had stones and everything else. And that kind of black Hessian stuff that, you know. And it was just, I was hacking away. I was sweating. And, and so I was going around this, this digging around it, digging around, digging around this bush. And hoped that I could eventually get it down. And I was pulling and biting. I was sweating. And people were walking past. It was, oh, it's lovely. And, 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 you know, it was just, I was baked hot. Anyway, I didn't get this thing out until later on in the afternoon, but I thought, I'm going to go in, and mum was being very lovely, and offered me some water, and, and I went in, and I was just lent on the counter like this, and all I heard was this from my mum, my mum's good at that, and I went, what? And she was like, Whoo. she just couldn't look at me, and I said, what? She went, your shorts and so I put my hand around the back of my, my pants and I could just feel this split from here down to here, like, like 18 inches long. I just spent the day showing my mum and dad's neighbours my blind spot. None of them said anything. My mum went, oh. I said, I've been like this, I don't know how long. It was probably first... 
you know, first dig. That We have blind spots. Sometimes God lovingly gives us people in our lives to point them out. He uses the Holy Spirit to do that. Sometimes they do it lovingly, and sometimes they go, wait, stop it, that's going to kill you. But constantly the fact that we're led by the Spirit of God should give us encouragement and assurance that in the battle and in the mission and in the transformation that we as a church, if you are being whispered to and reminded, then be encouraged. I've done a lot of counseling in my time as a pastor, and there are two types of people. This is a very sweeping statement, and Tracy, who is, would say, well, there's probably a few more than that, Glenn, but... There's people who can willfully and willingly live with sin and not feel any conviction for it. And then there are people who can willfully and, and uh, that, that can live with sin but feel conviction over it. And you can stray a long, long way. And God will let that happen. And maybe you have a loved one. You just think, they just seem so far away. But you don't know what conviction they're feeling. You don't know how easy it is for them to live with that sin. It might be causing tremendous pain and chaos in their life, and you don't know. See, that to me is the sign that there's been a conversion. The Spirit of God has changed them. And even if we can't see it, He can. Be encouraged, Christian, who's praying for that person. And that might be you. That you are living with a sin that you know is uh, just the furthest away from where God wants you to be and he is constantly reminding you and nudging you and leading you towards the light and away from the darkness for the, the mortification, the death to sin. He's saying, let's, let's get away from this. Let's, let's confess this. Let's work on this. And you're pushing it down and you continue to, to go down that line that you know it is sinful. Be encouraged, Christian friend. That is the sign that the Spirit of God is alive and well in you. If, however, you are able to live life willingly and willfully, quite happily sinning, My friend Phil, who preached a few weeks ago, said, I was going to hell and I was enjoying it. That's what he said. He said, people think you're sinning and you're unhappy. No, no, no. The world is filled with people who are sinning and quite happy, thank you very much, because the Spirit of God isn't in them yet. So be assured that we have a God who speaks and there's growth in that. Number two, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. I've preached a lot about spiritual adoption, so I'm not going to go into this in great depth. But as we know, the Roman um, process of adoption was was very, very uh, profound. You would get a rich landowner or somebody who had wealth who maybe they didn't have an older son or a firstborn to give their inheritance to. So they would literally go to the market and they would point and say, I'll take that one. And that slave becomes a child with full inheritance. It's amazing. They bring them into the family, say, "Mine, what's mine is yours. You are now a child of mine. It's a phenomenal Process. The father comes looking, reaches out, points and says, I take that one. What that, that, little, that little runt on the right-hand side that can barely get through life. Yeah, the one that's got like snot on his face. and like, Yeah, I'll have that one. The one who stinks a bit. Yeah, that one. You want him or her to be your child? Yes. And he reaches. 
That's the picture. Adoption as sons or daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Look, you have received this. So you've received leading by God, so go and change our city. You've also received adoption, this sense, this spirit, this sense of being owned and assured and cared for, that I am an heir, a child. My dad has got my back. He's the God of the mountain, the earthquake. He's the God of the water. He's got me. And even if he chooses for my life to finish at the end of this year, whatever it might be, he knows what he is doing. That's my God and he is my Abba, it says. I find it really hard that that it just happens that the Aramaic is Abba because the first thing I think about as a 70s kid is Abba. You know, apparently they're coming back on a world tour, so don't get too excited. How many of you are already like, well, yeah, count me in, I'm there. Yeah, dancing queens. Um, and now I'm just getting all the songs going through my mind. And I've, and I've ruined the rest of the service for you, because now you're singing, dancing queen. And those of you who are under the age of, what, 30? I don't know, going, what is he talking about? And you've experienced nothing, my friend. Welcome to the South. Abba. Paul was writing Greek to Greek understanding people. Why use an Aramaic word in the middle? You ever thought about that? Abba. The word Abba is actually equivalent to a, and this is what I loved about it being on Mothering Sunday, God has a beautiful plan. I didn't plan it this way. But the first words out of a child's mouth. Mama, Dada, whatever it might be. For our house, it was Manchester United. <laughs> Actually, no word of a lie. I spent years trying to get Luke as a toddler to say, Liverpool are rubbish. Liverpool are rubbish. Like that. You never... But he grew up. It worked. Abba. You'd... It's a universal language, isn't it? Abba. It's easy to say. It's an infant language, which is why it was astounding that Jesus referred to God as Abba in John 17. They would have blown their minds. Abba? Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. That's what it means. Think about a child. I mean, Sterling is bust and toddling around. We saw him running up and down, that angled toddler run like that. But when they're tiny, they reach out, don't they? Ba-ba-ba-ba. That sounds weird for me to say. It probably sounds weird for you to say here. But that is what Paul is saying. That's your dad. And this reaching out to the father, reaching out to the ba-ba-ba-ba-ba, starts with the father reaching out to us. Little Peter came in this morning. Toddlerly Peter comes in. And he wanted a hug. So I lift I reach out. And he reaches out, and I pick him up. That's the image. Why do babies reach out? Why do they want that? They want assurance. They want love. They want protection. They want control. They want to feel like it's going to be okay. They want somebody who's not going to let them down. They may just want to say hello. We reach out. 
And he's saying, look, as you go into the world and the world might slam into you, waves may come over you, then be assured you are being led and whispered to by the Father, showing you areas of your life that are going to be made stronger as we confess under conviction and bring it to him. But he also says this, know that you are led by a father, a daddy, a dad who loves you, a a parent who cares for you, who's reaching out and said, I'll have that one, reached out and said, yes, chosen before the foundation of the world. I want that one. That snotty, stinky one that's filled with sin. Yeah, that one. I want him. I want her. And he reaches out. And what's our response? We reach out with the spirit of adoption and say, yes, Father. Because we want it as a child. We want it somebody who will always be there. We always want somebody who can do anything. We want a parent who can love us through anything, who we feel like can do anything. We reach out to that. We want somebody who we know will love us unconditionally all the time. That no matter how far that child strays, that they have parents who reach out and say, it's okay. It's all right. We still love you. It's help. It's love. It's care. We're going to be there for you. And we still want that. Remember the prodigal father reaching out to his son to hold him. It's a reaching out by the father. And then we respond by reaching back. So this utter trust, this utter dependence, baby's snuggling in. Peter gave me the best hug this morning, snuggled in. That same snuggling in. And some of you don't like that. We need to change our view of the Father. He's there. Does that not make us want to go chest out, metaphorically, into the world and say, This is my calling, my neighbors, my friends, my co-workers, that God has given me this business so that I can point people to Jesus. It doesn't terminate on me and my family in comfort. It terminates on Jesus and the cross. That now my life is so much bigger, my mission is so much more, that I'm not just considering how I can grow and fill TFSAs and do this and secure my future. That is, that is not what we've been called to be. That's not what we've been called to do as a Christian. We've been called to look for opportunities to make disciples, share Jesus. And how do we do that? Because God speaks to us, He leads us, and He fills us with the sense of ownership and assurance that God is good and he is my dad. He's got my back through life and death. If we had some of that, I think we could steer a city. And finally, verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I love this verse. I spent a lot of time on this verse. That word witness is a really important word because it's literally a legal word. And it's a word that, that means that when you are being, um, uh, when, when somebody is accusing you of something, then you will bring a witness that advocates for you and your character. So let's put that image into our minds and our hearts and our lives for a second. This is what it means. That as we walk out into a world that wants to accuse pull down, lie, tell you that you're not good enough, tell you that you can't do that, don't take the risk, don't, don't look at your bank account and see, okay, how much money can I give? 
don't look for a community group to join because how will that affect your family? Don't, don't go to church regularly. Don't pray. Don't read your Bible. This is what you get inundated with. Spend more time on this. You've got to think about the future. Your responsibility as a parent is to look after your children. The Bible says that. All these things that are stented with some truth, when the world says that, this is what this verse tells us, that the Holy Spirit says, this is the truth. He whispers encouragement, reminders, constantly, I'm with you. It's time to step forward. It's time to get out of the boat. It's time to climb the mountain. It's time now to actually look for ways in which we as a church body can gather together and see people one for Christ in our city. It's time to put our priorities aside and look to his priorities. It's time to realize that at the end of the day, our number one calling on our life is not to build kingdoms for ourselves, but to build his kingdom, to see people come to know Jesus, to talk to your neighbor. That's what the Holy Spirit constantly whispers. And so when I get up and I preach, I am confident that all I am doing, I hope, is joining in with what I know God is already speaking to us about. Because there's nothing in this sermon you can go, oh, well, I don't actually believe that God wants me to go and speak to somebody about Jesus. We have a Father, and He's with us, and He's close. And sometimes that changes with intensity. Maybe you're struggling with loneliness. You have a partner. You have a Father who whispers His love and joy and care over your life. If you're a young person, you've got kind of this idea that this is not adventure this is he whispers this is where the adventure lies this is what life is actually about you know my concern my burden maybe that's a better word is that as Christians at Willow Park Network and at the South that we get so caught up with our day to day routine and priorities and focuses, all of which are good, many of which are good. We get so caught up with the busyness and the taxi driving <laughs> and, and, and the sports and the business and the work or retirement. We get all caught up with this and we'll miss it. We'll miss this opportunity. Do you know Jesus referred to the days that he was, to the days when Jesus was going to come back. Jesus said this, the, as in the days of Noah. That's a whole other sermon, but you know what I often think about? These are, these are the days of Glenn. And I'm not being narcissistic, but this is my opportunity. This is my vapor, as the Bible says. Come and gone. That in Acts 17, that God says that he has determined where I live, how long I live for, and what I'm going to do so that I might feel my way towards him. This is my chance and my deepest conviction. My burden is that we not be a church that is so focused on the, on the stuff that God has given us that we don't take notice of those that we're called to reach. People need what we've got. They need God, absolutely. But they need you and me, because you don't get this in the world. You don't get community in the world. I love it at the end of the service when I say, okay, go start church. 
it takes ages to get rid of you. Now today, Mother's Day, there's lunch to be had. I get that. But I love to see the community groups start forming in the congregation. And that's special. We have something the world does not have, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus said, they will know you by your love for one another. And we have a responsibility to take that into the world and do something. So here's what's going to happen. We're at a crucial point in the life of the South. I made a list. I don't know how many of you read it. I sent it out a couple of weeks ago in the email of all the things that God has done over the last seven years in this church. I don't know if you saw I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up because it will discourage me and I'll end up sitting in a corner rocking. None of them read my emails. I knew it. I don't know why I do this. It actually tells me how many percentage-wise, and I refuse to look at it. 46% this week took notice. Okay, that's fine. But I actually sent it out. I don't know if... I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up. Please don't. Read it. Two weeks back. Read it. All the good things that God has done. But we need to see more people come to know Jesus. So in the fall, we're going to do an alpha going to be a south type alpha and uh, we're going to do it with people in our community in mind we're also going to probably i'm still praying through this do a series on the questions that skeptics ask not many people come into church asking questions about uh, john the baptist people do come into church going well what about god and science what about god and sex his view on gender and sexuality what what about uh, the inconsistencies in the bible So we're going to do a series, maybe about eight weeks, looking at a different question each week. And the whole thing is based on having alpha underlying it as well. The whole idea being that you can invite people into the church, that we can start praying and we can start looking and we can start inviting people now towards something that's going to happen in the fall. You can invite them through the summer, absolutely. It's not like they're not allowed, but just have that in mind. We're going to do that. But here's the deal, friends. This is a great opportunity for you to start praying and for you to start serving and for you to actually dedicate yourself. I'm going to bring somebody to Alpha. Wouldn't it be great if we had this many people, then another lot of you here for Alpha? We need people who are going to take leadership in that because Sarah and I can't do everything and nor biblically should we. We need people who are going to step up and say, you know what, we need, we need to reach out to our seniors. We need to do more visitation. These are things that are practical ways that we can actually get involved, join a community group. It's the best way. Well, I haven't got time because I've got to focus on this stuff. No, we, this is our days. This, these are our days. Amen? So how do you get involved? I thought about throwing around sign-up sheets and then releasing Brad upon you all because Brad is fantastic at getting names on a list and pen. But you know where I am. Email me. Email Sarah. I'm in. That's all you need. You don't even have to do elaboration. I'm in. And put your name on the list and when the time comes, we'll come and get you. We'll reach out. Let's step up. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word thank you father that it's inspiring